Musica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, and it shall be on the next show. But right now, I'm Angie Cuero sitting in. I'm with In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Flurry of reports, of course, from the G20 today, but a lot of developments we will never know about. Everything you have heard so far about the Syria discussion, about Trump confronting Putin, about election interference, that's all as alleged by Rex Tillerson. He's the only guy who went in there with Trump to meet with Putin, as Minister Sergei Lavrov, and the translators. That's the way Trump likes it. No witnesses. And this is, mark this, a break with tradition. The tradition of at least pretending the president is conducting the people's business. Former ambassador to Russia Michael McFaul this morning posted a picture of the norm. The 2009 G20 gathering with President Obama surrounded by his team of three, plus translators. Attorney and journalist Seth Abramson said flat out the absence of a note taker, a Putin critic, or any of the scads of officials Trump's aides asked for is shocking and suspicious. This is not a man who overstates things. There are also Russia versus America discrepancies of what was said in that room already. Chris Saliza points out there was also considerable confusion between the two sides about how Trump handled Putin's denial of Russian involvement. New York Times Moscow bureau chief said that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had said Trump said he accepted statements from Putin that Russia had not hacked the election. Lavrov's take was rapidly contradicted by a senior administration official who told CNN Trump did not accept President Putin's claim of non-interference in the election. But we don't get to know, do we? We don't get to know. And I'll tell you, if there's anybody that I want my international relations news filtered through, it is the former CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson. On this and on a lot more, let's spend some time with the host of The Zero Hour, RJ Escow. We are killing two birds with one stone on this one because Richard has a take on another story. The New York Times guest opinion piece urging the Democratic Party to move to the center to become a new and invigorated success. Mark Penn, who co-wrote the article, was an advisor to Bill and Hillary Clinton. And here is Richard Escow to give us his take on the editorial on Putin, Trump, and whether the Democratic push on Russian email hacking is way out of proportion to what matters. Here's our conversation. You and I and people across America all looked at the New York Times article the other day from Penn and Stein and said, what? <laughs> I think that it just seemed like some blast from the past where the idea of talking about moving the Democratic Party to the center away from the fringe 
may have had some resonance, but now, at least to my eyes, it looks like utterly disconnected from the reality we're facing today about who the Democrats are, where the real power is coming from, and what the American people are telling the Democrats that they want. So that's my take. Let's dive into your take, which I want to note for our listeners is up at Huffington Post. Penn and Stein, two rich Democratic hacks peddling lousy advice. That's a hint, huh? Right. Well, the full title is Peddling Lousy Advice, What Could Go Wrong? Um, But uh, look, my three-word take, and then I'll give you a slight longer take, my three-word take on Penn and Stein is grifters got a grift. And gotta, of course, is one word, G-O-T-T-A. The grifters, they're they're con men, they're they're people. Look, Andrew Stein, I guess there are two things. First of all, let's start with the good news and then the bad news. The good news is that Mark Penn's star has apparently fallen so far in the Democratic Party that he's gone from being Hillary Clinton's campaign manager while at the same time running a sleazy PR operation and ironically creating bad PR for his most famous client. But he's gone from being Hillary Clinton's campaign manager in 2008 to the only person he could get to co-write an op-ed in the New York Times with him was convicted tax evader uh, Andrew Stein, former New York City Manhattan borough president, who uh, was convicted of tax evasion after he pleaded down from being involved in a Ponzi scheme and, uh, by the way, endorsed Donald Trump in 2016 with, uh, with an op-ed that included the immortal words and false words, Donald Trump is not a racist. So if that is the best that Mark Penn can do for writing partner, that's a good news. The other piece of good news is that while claiming that the center has all the answers, these two dishonest fleas bags uh, – just to say, oh, we should take the centrist position like fair trade where we don't, you know, where, where we make sure that people don't get a tax break for moving their factories overseas and we renegotiate those bad deals. Well, it's like, no, uh, that was the left position that you centrists attacked and berated when you were pushing NAFTA and the WTO agreement and everything else. But rather than just say, hey, look, we were wrong about trade, which is what a decent person would do. These two guys uh, – have to go out and pretend that that was their quote-unquote centrist position all along. So like I say, grifters got a grip, but the good news is they've got to pretend that they're us at the same time that they're attacking us. So we're obviously gaining the upper hand, and they know it. But everything else, like I quoted in the piece, um, uh, Mary McCarthy, the novelist, saying about another writer, every word they write is a lie, including and and not. Well, you know, one of the reactions that many of the reactions that I saw to the column were attacking the very idea that this is nowadays where the Democratic Party seems to be and needs to be. And I'm glad, Richard, you went into the who they are side of this. But even if this were coming for reliable, valid, thoughtful sources, that idea really does seem to have fallen by the wayside that the progressives are left, are freakish have no future in the Democratic Party. And if we've seen one thing over the elections past, even even while Obama was in office, progressives, if the Democrats play their cards right, are the future of the Democratic Party. Or am I overstating that? No, I think they're the future of the Democratic Party. I think they're, they, we are the future of American politics. I think it's clear. Look, I mean, you know, Mark Penn, you know, 
passes himself off for a pollster and a data guy, but you'll note that he didn't quote any polls on the issues in this entire piece. He's like, well, wouldn't you think he would do that if the polling was on his side? But the fact is, the polling shows that most, a vast majority of people want to protect and expand Social Security, for example, including most Republicans. So they are with us on the Social Security issue. Most people don't want dumb foreign wars with no uh, end game. So most people are with us on that. Most people want to see wages go up. They want to see jobs created. They want to see our infrastructure rebuilt and not with a sham giveaway to billionaires and corporations like Donald Trump is going to try to cram down our throat. So most people want what we, the left, are offering. And of course, that means it's panic time for the Mark Pens of the world, because they've had a sweet deal for 30 years. They've been selling their clients to Democrats, and for a while, they're the voters, uh, as the answer to all their problems. And their clients were politicians who were also very corporation-friendly. And since their other big line of income was corporations, if you're Mark Penn, that's a great position to be in. But, you know, the voters don't buy that anymore. They see through it, and, and they don't like corporate Democrats anymore, which is why Democrats have lost more than a thousand legislature seats since 2009. It's why they, they've lost two-thirds of governorships. It's why they've lost Congress, that and gerrymandering and vote stealing and all of that, which for some reason Democrats don't fight hard enough against. Which, um, but, uh, you know, so yeah, they're panicked, and I think they should be panicked because their day is done. Well, you've decided to become a Democrat again. Why is that? Yep. Uh, you know why? Because Well, number one, because I moved away from California with its nutty open primary system. Uh, but number two, you know, I left the Democratic Party when, you know, when the last of the Democratic leadership in 2012 signed on to Simpson-Bowles, that horrible austerity uh, budget-cutting deal that Obama Obama's commission was pushing. And I just thought, okay, this party just doesn't represent me anymore. I have no need to vote in the primaries, um, uh, to be a Democrat, to vote in the primaries. So, you know, I'm out. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm, I'm obviously not. I'm to the left of this party. And I think, you know, in many ways, I probably still am. But uh, now I'm a resident, a new, re- a new resident of Maryland, where I lived, you know, quite a few years ago. And um, I think I can make, a, you know, I can be a, a voter in the primaries here. I want to be an activist in the party again and and really move it to make it the party we need. And uh so as soon as I get around, I hope I hope the Maryland authorities aren't listening. As soon as I get around <laughs> to getting a driver's license in this state and, you know, all that stuff, I am going to re-register as a Democrat. But I'm still going to consider myself a person of the left first and foremost. But I am going to be a Democrat. I know it's it's a really old and trite discussion, but it still goes on. What's the most effective way of working with the Democrats from within when a lot of people are saying they can't be reformed from within? We need a third party. They're hopeless. They've done their deal. They've had their chance. It's over. Well, you know, I don't know if I've ever said this to you before, but I always say, uh, you know, have the same relationship to the Democratic Party that Thoreau had to the world. Be in it, but not of it. 
You know, just use it as an instrument, as a tool, because right now it's very hard to get you can have a third-party consciousness if you want, but if you want to, and I kind of do, but if you want to really affect change, um, and this, by the way, is something that the Democratic Socialists of America push, other groups push. If you really want to affect change right now, that's the best way to do it, but do it without being, you know, while being proud of your left beliefs and your left ideals. I mean, Bernie is still a registered independent, Bernie Sanders, but, you know, my old boss, but he's still, you know, he's working within the Democratic Party structure because he thinks that's the most effective way to do it. Now, I, since I'm also a writer, will continue to write from a, you know, very progressive point of view, um, which will often not sync with even what my favorite Democrats want to do. Mm-hmm. Um but that's okay. You know, I, I'm going to vote as a, as a Democrat. Uh, and, uh, you know, there may be times when I don't want to vote for the Democratic nominee. Those, those you know, let's not forget, it's, let's, it's not just the presidency. It's all up and down the ballot. There may be Democrats who I really dislike enough that I want to send that message. But more often than not, uh, I think it's really a matter of, you know, show up. Do, uh, I love what our revolution is doing. Other groups are doing. Show up, get the party delegate seats, go to the convention, state conventions, you know, really uh, change or subvert it from within. And if that's not your thing, do something else. You know, if, that, if you don't want to be a Democrat, don't be a Democrat, but, but, but don't, you know, don't work. Uh, you know, don't don't live in a dream world either. But there are other great ways to contribute. Be an activist. Be a volunteer. You know, set up a march. You know, uh, be a witness to immoral government behavior. I mean, I'm not saying this way is the only way, or that it's the only way I'll follow. But I mean, it's just what I've decided to do strategically. Besides, you know, my old comrade uh, ben, uh, Benjelis is running for governor here in Maryland, and I want him to win. So I want to cast a vote for him. Got it. Okay. I like the, I like the throw bit. Yeah, I do actually remember that. I do remember that. Well, let's talk about our, our whack job POTUS, as John Podesta said today. Um, President Trump was off to the group of 20, of course, and there he is meeting with Putin. And there are a number of unusual things that went on there. First of all, uh, he tweeted out Friday that everyone here is talking about why John Podesta refused to give the DNC server to the FBI and the CIA. Disgraceful. And John Podesta took his time to tweet back that this was the whack job president. <laughs> yeah, but, well, you know, bearing in mind that John Podesta and his team of geniuses lost to that whack job president. So this is this is like, uh, you know, uh, a goldfish fight or something. Except one of those anyway, goldfish, unfortunately, was was locked up for two hours with Vladimir Putin and apparently decided to reject the standard of having note takers in there. So we're stuck with Rex Tillerson, one of the privileged few who was in the room, to tell us what was talked about in terms of the email hack, which apparently Tillerson wants us all to move on from, uh, depending on some of the coverage that you, that you see. The, the one that uh, I particularly noticed was that Putin was confronted by Donald Trump, who moved on to deny that anything had happened. Uh, and Tillerson is, is our, our voice of intelligence on that, on Syria, and anything else that happened in that two-hour, 15-minute meeting that the rest of us are not privy to. Any thoughts on that? Well, sure. I mean, obviously, it's super weird that we don't get 
you know, any real reporting on that meeting. It's what happens when you get two autocratic people, you know, two people with that kind of totalitarian mindset in a room. Uh, they're going to they're going to do what they do, which is undemocratic and against the free flow of information. So uh, that bugs me you no know, end. I think that's absolutely wrong. Uh, also, I think it's politically stupid because uh, Trump, you know, has got it at some point, try to persuade people he's not a Putin puppet or whatever the Democrats call him these days. And to do that, the best way to do that is not by having an off-the-record two-and-a-half-hour meeting with with Putin. But, you know, all of that said, too, I think that uh, Democrats uh, need to, and I'm talking about MSNBC, Democrats, you know, Rachel Maddow and Joy Reid, as well as uh, elected officials like Maxine Waters and Adam Schiff, have got to get off the Russia train for a while. I mean, they should be clamoring once a day loudly for a special prosecutor and uh, an independent commission to look into the allegations of vote tampering, but they've been retweeting falsehoods, nuts like this Louise Mensch woman who's a conspiracy conspiracy theorist and fake They've been retweeting all kinds of fake news and garbage. They're really, uh, they're first of all, they're violating my first precept as a journalist slash activist, which is don't get ahead of this story and value the truth as an inherent value. They, they don't seem to do that. So they got to stop that stuff. And secondly, it's political, in my opinion. Secondly, it's hurting them politically. You know, I mean, you had Nina Turner, who's now the head of our revolution, say very reasonably that when she goes back to Ohio, where she's from, people, voters aren't talking about Russia. And now you get Joan Walsh, you know, who's one of the these folks saying the writers saying tweeting out well i wonder why nina turner is so anxious to change the subject from russia as if nina turner is part of a russia conspiracy that's how nutty the democrats have gotten and, and i noticed by the way that a week later when tim ryan the conservative democrat from ohio also said that people in ohio don't talk about russia very much and we've got to talk about something else i didn't notice the joan walsh's of the world saying that tim ryan implying that Tim Ryan was a Russian agent. So, you know, there's an ideological agenda of trying to make sure the left doesn't take over the Democratic Party. It's not just Mark Penn. It's Joy Reid. It's Joan Walsh. It's Peter Dow. It's it's a whole bunch of people who want to keep the Democratic Party for themselves and their well, David Brock, whomever, for themselves and their well-funded friends. And people got to stop listening to them, stop following them, stop retweeting them, stop retreating garbage and nuts like this guy Eric Garland and and, you know, some of the other people I mentioned, and get back to reality. And reality is we need a commission. We need to find out what did or didn't happen with Russia. But people are living every day with the consequences of the economy that was built up, not just under five months of Trump, but on under 30 years of economic mis mismanagement. Well, let me ask you this, Richard, and I do want to note that there are people on that list you mentioned that I respect very much, very much. And one of the difficulties, I think, in talking to or about them, about what's going on, is that so much of our conversation now is conducted in 140 characters. And, you know, it, it's difficult to talk out some of the things you do have conflicts about. Um, you know, I like and respect Joan Ryan, a number of others, Joy Reid that you mentioned. But, yeah, it's, it's hard to have these conversations where instead you have to look at some tweets and look who's retweeting whom and, you know, remember to go outside of the social media world to find out what people are saying. But let me ask you this. What do you consider to be settled fact where Russian interference is concerned? 
Uh, you know, amazingly little, actually. Um, I th- and I think that was one of the things that the DNC... Uh, let's let's say if there was if they were hacked by the Russians, it was foolish of them not to let uh, not to cooperate with Comey, not to turn over their server because uh, now there's no hard evidence. It's only the only group that says it's tracked it back to Russians and not specifically to Putin, but seemingly to to Russian actors that could be government is the group the CrowdStrike that um, that the DNC hired, which is you know an organization for hire with a mixed reputation. So I guess I would say the, we know that Russian uh, we know that there's evidence pointing to a number of hackers spreading false fake news, and that that fake news includes people in uh, in the Russian part of the world. Uh, but beyond that, I consider that uh, you know I consider the the story yet to be proven. We have you know we have the word of people in intelligence agencies. James Clapper, I don't respect so much. There are a couple other people, Richard Clark, and so on, who I have higher regard for. You know, who believe that the Russians were involved. So I guess I would say pro- there's nothing proven. Uh, there's every reason to suspect something and to be demanding that the American people deserve to know one way or another. So I want a special prosecutor. I'll tell you what what is proven. We know that there's every reason to believe Trump has financial interests in Russia. We know that Trump and Jared Kushner want, you know, saw it as, and see it as a great market for them. So I think there's their financial incentives for corruption in Russia. I think that's pretty well proven with Trump and Kushner, as there are with Saudi Arabia, by the way, with Trump and Kushner. And so I think that's very important. I think if we get a Trump story out of all of this, it's going to be more about money and oligarchy then it will be about you know old-fashioned espionage, but that's important too, and mm-hmm. that's corruption. So uh, I guess I would say that's where the investigation would, if I were a betting man, I'd say that's where the investigation is going to wind up. But I think we know enough about Manafort and his relationships with the Ukrainians, and by the way, also one of the Podesta brothers and relationships with the Ukrainians. So it all gets messy. But we know that uh, that there are also those kinds of relationships too. So I think I think it is well past time for an independent commission of people with subpoena power to look into this. And I think given all the lies and confusion and deception and everything else around Trump and his appointees in Russia, I think we need an independent, I mean, I think we need a special prosecutor to look into evidence of foreign interference in our election and evidence of corruption in the Trump campaign. There are overlapping, overlapping topics. And, report, you know, I think that prosecutor needs to make a public report. RJ, I can always count on you for, for outside-the-box thinking and thoughtful, independent thinking. And I, I appreciate you talking to me once again. It's always great. Oh, well, I appreciate that. It's always great to talk to you, Angie. RJ is the host of The Zero Hour, a weekly program heard on some of these same stations and streams. He's also a senior fellow with the Campaign for America's Future. Bye, RJ. Next time. All right. Up next, at a time when we urgently need experts, they're getting drowned out in public discourse and generally disrespected. I'm Angie Claro. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. 
to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. And when we get behind closed doors... It's the broadcast. Brad returns for the next show, and he will bring Desi along. We are in time of tenuous security. Our, dare I use the word president is unequipped and disinclined to become a thoughtful, intellectually curious, informed leader. And the fact that note-takers and any true representative of the American people were excluded from the Trump-Putin meeting is just another marker of how unimportant he feels we are, how much he either looks down on us or doesn't think about us at all. This is the worst possible time for us to disregard people who've studied and analyzed issues in the deepest possible manner. Tom Nichols, for example, is an actual expert on Russia. Right now, countless blogs and YouTube channels and broadcasts are churning out opinions on the Trump-Putin meeting. How many of them actually know Russian relations? Tom detailed our increasingly dismissive attitude toward people who know the most in his book, The Death of Expertise. Here's an excerpt from our conversation in June. Instead of a lack of acknowledgement and saying, not only don't I respect your area of knowledge, but I know it as well as you do or better. That's the thing that's changed. That's what's really different. That's what really moved me to write the book. Questioning experts, getting a second opinion, uh, thinking that, you know, history is bunk. um, All of those old kind of American reflexes are perfectly normal. What isn't normal is for somebody to say, oh, you're a working journalist? Let me explain journalism to you. (laughs) That's actually what happened to me that made me write the book was that... um, I'm a Russia specialist, and that means I speak Russian, I, or you speak better Russian, but I still speak Russian. Um, I went and got specialized training into it. I went to a, um, an institute at Columbia University that does nothing but train Russia experts. I've gone there countless times, written books on it. And during an endless discussion about the Edward Snowden affair, finally, um, I noticed that over and over again, people were saying to me, Tom, I understand what you're saying. And what I was saying at the time, by the way, is wait for it. There's a Russian hand in this, which is now kind of accepted common <laughs> wisdom. And at the time was, oh my God, the most explosive thing you could say. And people were literally saying to people with no background or, or education or training or experience in this were saying, Tom, I don't think you really understand Russia. Let me explain it to you. And I finally, one night, I got to the point where I said, you know, I've had enough of this. And I sat down and I... Um, vented into my blog, which I no longer keep, by the way, because I think blogs are part of the problem. And I realized that I was being part of the problem. So I took my blog down um, and uh, I said, you know, this is this has got to stop. And that that's what made me think about what's really different about this. And that in turn produces a lack of civility on both sides, because obviously to say to somebody, you're a journalist, let me explain journalism to you. The first first of all, to say that somebody is really insulting in and of itself. But then, of course, your immediate reaction is to say, well, hell no. You know, um, I, I've actually said to people in real life as well, when, I, when people said, I need to explain this to you, I say, you know, usually I, I'm the paid explainer. <laughs> I'm a professor. I get people hand me money to explain stuff. <laughs> and so trust me that I can probably explain this. You know, I, I'm pretty good at the explaining thing. Um, and people get really offended by that. And then now, you know, they're offended and I'm offended and we're all offended and everybody kind of walks away huffy. So I think the the lack of respect for expertise and the civility problem really gin each other up really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, there's an anecdote in your book where you talk about a, a student who essentially says, my opinion is as good as yours to a professor. That's, that is, uh, the anecdote in the book is I, I um, had just arrived as a young professor at Dartmouth College in the early 90s. And um, 
apparently this was, astro he since passed away, was an astrophysicist named Robert Jastrow, who also was a big advocate of missile defense. Um, this was in the old, old um, you know, Star Wars, SDI, Reagan era. And apparently a, a young student decided to try to talk him out of missile defense, even though Jastrow was an astrophysicist. And finally, after arguing back and forth, the kid said, uh, well, your guess is as good as mine. And Jastrow apparently stopped him right there and said, no, 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 no. My guesses are much, much better than yours. <laughs> now, I think, you know, that, and we'll talk about education, I'm sure, at some point, but I think a, a lot more professors and a lot more experts and a lot more policy wonks and uh, specialists in every field need to stop, you know, pull people up short when they say, well, your guess is as good as mine. No, no, it's not. Whether you're a whether you're a specialist in Russian politics or you're a master electrician. I mean, this is happening, I, I really want to emphasize this, this is happening across all specializations. I've had people in trades walk up to me and say, kind of read your piece, because I've, I've written several pieces on this in various places. Uh, a photographer said to me, every wedding she sets up, somebody walks over and, somebody who has no idea what they're doing, walks over and says, so uh, what, uh, what lens are you using there? <laughs> And she's just like, oh, you know, like the temptation to start making stuff up, you know. <laughs> well, I'm using a scrambled Portistan 74 millimeter, you know. And have people go, oh, all right, as long as you're using that one, you know, <laughs> because they have no idea. Um, but it's a way, it's empowering. It's a way of saying, I, look, I know something. I know stuff about what you know. I'm, you know, instead of just letting the per person get on with their job. And I've, had, I've heard this from everybody, from surgeons to master electricians. And, it, and it's really um, kind of, uh, you know, frightening in a way. The book under discussion, The Death of Expertise, Tom Nichols is my guest. The rest of the title, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. I should tell people, this book is actually written with a great sense of humor. 90% of everything... How many books by Oxford are going to quote the big Lebowski and Monty Python? <laughs> The Monty Python made me really happy. <laughs> 90% of everything is crap. Yes, that's actually Sturgeon's law. There was a, a Silver Age science fiction writer named Theodore Sturgeon. And Sturgeon was really irritated by the fact that literary critics didn't like science fiction. They said, science fiction, it's a ghetto. That, that was the word in the 50s and 60s. Science fiction isn't real literature. And so, apparently some literary critics said, science fiction is crap. And Theodore Sturgeon said, listen, 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> Uh, and so I said, look, if you take that, especially where the internet's concerned or any, any big kind of open source of information, you know, just take that as your guiding rule that about 90% of everything is crap. Sturgeon had a point. There's a billion websites in the world. Just assume that about 900 million of them are crap. And that is what a, a sophisticated consumer of information can do then to understand that if you want to cull out what isn't crap, then you have to start understanding what expertise is about. I think so. Yes. Although I, I would say that, you know, anyone who goes to the internet and, and searches and comes up with those first 10 results and says these are probably true is already in deep water. And unfortunately, that's what we're finding is exactly what's happening, particularly among younger users of the internet, that whatever an algorithm coughs up at them, they say, well, this must be the answer. It must be true. So, uh, but yes, that, that I think people have to start thinking about where these sources come from. Are the people who are writing them and presenting them actually experts instead of just people who came out of a search algorithm or who showed up on my television at you know, two in the morning? You're hands-on with students. I just wonder how this, how this plays out in your classrooms, whether you've been able to dialogue, talk with any of the students and say, I get the impression you don't respect authority. I get the impression you don't understand why I'm qualified. I mean, really talk to them about 
where they're coming from with that? Why they have this mindset that everybody's got an equal opinion? Well, it's interesting. I deal with two separate groups of students in my working day. Um, I, and during the day, I teach military officers. And again, I don't represent the Navy or the War College or anybody else. Teaching military officers who are between 30 and 40 years old is a, is a unique experience because they actually are coming in with a lot of operational knowledge and expertise of their own. But, you know, even there, we have to kind of negotiate a space of you may know how to fly an airplane, but I know about Russia. I, I worked with a, a Navy aviator as a fellow teacher, and we used to tease each other in front of the students to make them understand this was okay. I'd say, how many times have you been to Russia? And he'd say, how many night carrier landings do you have? And the students would say, oh, okay, I guess it's okay to you know, argue about this stuff. Um, the undergraduates I teach at night at the extension school are a little different. Um, and I've been teaching undergraduates at various institutions uh, from Dartmouth to Georgetown to LaSalle to other schools for 30 years. And uh, I, I think insofar as I run into the students who have that attitude, and I actually love most of my students. I tease, as many of you know, I tease millennials mercilessly, um, but uh, I kid because I love. Um, <laughs> but insofar as they do come into class with that attitude, it's because that's what they've been told for 12 years before that that we have a very therapeutic approach to education now, which is the students have to feel good about themselves. You know, wrong answers have to be phrased gently. Red pens are insulting. Um, and I think that is just a really bad idea. Someone asked me a few months ago, what do you recommend? How would you inculcate more critical thinking among younger students? And I said, stop telling them they're awesome all day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and I mean that. I mean, it's not that you don't love them and you don't love having them in class and that, that the student-teacher bond, I think, I, I say this with no ax to grind. I've, for 30 years, my teaching evaluations have always been great. I get along with my students. But, tell, you know, to people who tell students all day long how awesome they are, the students know it's a lie. Um, they know that they're not learning something. And it breeds in them, um, a, as I put it in the book, a kind of fragile or toxic mixture of both arrogance and fragility at the same time. Mm -hmm. Julie Lithcott-Haim was here uh, from Stanford, and I don't know if you know her book, How to Raise an Adult, but she talks about the entitlement that comes from the whole everybody gets a ribbon mentality. And you can see the intent of trying to raise people who have confidence. Where does that fall off a cliff? Uh, you know, it, uh I think, it, I think to avoid telling students that they're wrong or that to establish that authority in the classroom that you know better than they do, um, it, it, sets, it makes them unmoored because that they, they want to know that somebody's actually leading them through this dark forest and that that, that person knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time worrying about the self-confidence of the students. I think, to, you know, help them to do their best work and the self-confidence will come. You don't imbue them with self-confidence first and say, now go do your best work because the first thing defeats the second. Man, I started reading your book and I thought the Dunning-Kruger effect is going to come up. Mm. Boom, there it was. Yes. Explain what that is and why it's important. Uh, well, two social psychologists um, for whom it's named, we're trying to figure out why is it that people who aren't good at stuff aren't good at stuff. Any of us who've ever had to try to train or teach somebody who just doesn't seem to get it, right? And say, you know, whether it's um, golf or physics, why is it that people who are bad at something don't seem to understand they're bad at something? What they found is basically the dumber you are, the less likely you are to know you're dumb. Or the worse you are at something, the less likely you are to know you're bad at it. Um, imagine somebody who's tone deaf. That There's always that one guy you go out with to karaoke or something. He says, listen, wait, wait till I get up there. I'm awesome. And then they get up there and you say, oh, dear God. <laughs> and then they sit down and say, I nailed it, right? <laughs> and, and you're just sitting there going, oh, no, you didn't. 
And so the Dunning-Kruger effect talks about something called metacognition, which is the ability to do something and then step out of yourself for a moment and say, now, what, did I do this right? Um, for those of us who are writers, you, we have it in both directions. You step back and you look at it and you say, damn, that was, you know, what, look, writers aren't athletes, okay? We can't remember that big pass we threw. So, so we're nerds and say, boy, the day I put that semicolon, I nailed that sucker. <laughs> um, but also the ability to step back, and I, I've had this happen where I've written something, gone back to it in a little bit and said, wow, this really stinks. I mean, I can't believe I wrote this. Um, and so that's metacognition. And people who don't have it tend to not be very good at what they're doing, but then insist that they are. And that's where the problem comes in. There are very few fields where this isn't a problem. Sports, for example, people can lie. Nobody says I'm a 300 hitter if they're not, because they're just not, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just keep striking them out and they say, okay, I guess I'm not. Um, but with anything else, um, writing, driving exams, um, Dunning, Dunning and Kruger looked at this, you know, students handing in tests, people have a strong tendency to overvaluate their own competency. Did they look at the presidency? <laughs> <laughs> Have I mentioned that I don't represent the views <laughs> of the... Uh, and, you know, that is, the problem is, yeah, that um, Dunning himself actually did a piece uh, just before Trump was elected president that said, you know, the problem with Donald Trump's voters is not that he, Trump makes mistakes and they forgive him. It's that they don't recognize those things as mistakes. And, and for those of you that are, you know, trying to figure out why can't I ever argue, you know, with somebody who I, where I can't get anywhere with this, it's because you're not starting from the same position. You're not starting from the same foundation. So how can you not, you know, how can you not be upset about this terrible mistake that, you know, this gaffe or this weird thing that the president, they say, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see it that way. And so it's, that's a similar problem of just not recon recognizing mistakes as mistakes, even in other people. Well, that goes to one of the titles of your chapters, is, is how conversations became exhausting, and they are exhausting oh, now. Lord, yes. Uh, in part, I think conversation is exhausting now, again, because of this narcissism problem. My, my parents were very intelligent people, but they weren't educated people. My parents were high school dropouts, you know, depression era family. But my dad was really, my dad was a real pain sometimes. And he was really smart, but he's really overbearing. On the other hand, if somebody who had a field of knowledge said to him, Nick, you're just wrong. Here, I'm a lawyer, here's the truth. Or I'm a doctor, here's the truth. My father would say, okay. You know, I simply, what's exhausting now is people say, not only do I not believe you, but the fact that you are a professional or somebody of a, is I will additionally reject you because of that. Because now I suspect your motives in this conversation. Um, and that bad faith that now poisons every conversation makes everything exhausting. There, there's another part of it, uh, though, that as a teacher and as a scholar and a subject area expert, I guess I could say, that, that frustrates me, is that people have had just enough education to be really infuriating in, dis in a discussion because they think they've gotten the rules of those kinds of discussions now. They say things like, well, you believe um, that you know, Russia was involved in attacking our election. Present your evidence. <laughs> to which, you know, going back to the civility problem, I say, okay, I can't start from you know, day one and educate you in the background of Russian political activity in the United States. I just can't. I don't have the time. But, and would you understand it if I did? Now, I'm not asking you to say, well, you're an expert, therefore I take your word on everything. Start from the presumption that I, mu that I probably know what I'm talking about and that the best check on me are going to be other experts. 
that if you don't like what I'm saying, you can find other Russia experts. There aren't that many who disagree with me. Um, there are a couple. Well, on this, it's, you know, it's just not, I mean, it's like finding the, the rogue climate scientist. You know, it's, I mean, the, most Russia experts are pretty well in the same side. Um, I would also add, by the way, as a matter for your audience, when people say, you experts never agree. It looks like we never agree because the dissenting voices are always presented as though it's a 50-50 split. The fact is, experts do tend to cluster around various conclusions, and this is true in my field as well. Um, but when somebody starts by saying, um, I simply don't believe you because I can probably know as much about Russia as you do, and I'd like to see your evidence because then I will independently evaluate your evidence as though I am capable of doing this, conversation becomes utterly exhausting because then you start with what's a fact, what counts as evidence, um, what's a pronoun, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it just, and it, finally, at some point, you know, the, the, again, the layperson walks away angry, the expert walks away exhausted and cranky, and nobody's really learned anything. That's Tom Nichols on the death of expertise. You can hear the rest of that interview at indeepradio.com. Coming up, stories that should not get lost amongst the louder stuff with Kelly Macias of Daily Coast. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. I want to be a pro, learn all there is to know. I want to be an expert, expert. It's the I broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for the I vacationing Brad Friedman. He's going to be back for the next show. Whew, that's a relief to me. It's been a very busy week. The problem with the busiest weeks in politics and news is that small stuff tends to get lost. And I mean small stuff only in terms of how it's covered. There's some very important stuff simmering underneath the big headlines. I found someone on Daily Coast who's covering a lot of that. Kelly Macias has had one post after another looking at some important things that would threaten to go by the wayside if it weren't for people like her keeping an eye out for it. So I looked her up. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, Angie. Thanks for having me. I, I want to talk first about, we hadn't heard much about the housing and urban, urban development budget cuts. And we've had to our credit as Americans, we've had an awful lot of protests, but one thing that happens sometimes is when there's too much noise. Again, things fall beside the, under the wayside, and there actually has been activism around the HUD budget cuts that I hadn't heard anything about. Can you bring me up to date on that? Absolutely. Yeah, um, and a really important um, uh, activism that is happening around the budget cuts. So let me frame it for you. So um, we know that the Trump administration is notorious for their alternative facts, and this uh, is no exception. Um, so in their budget, they have framed that they are uh, going to cut somewhere between 300 and $600 million from the HUD budget, which turns out to not be true. It's looking more like $7 billion, um, which is quite a bit of money. Um, and within that... Um, they are proposing to cut about uh, $2 billion from public housing, about $2.3 billion for voucher assistance for people who rent um, from private owners. Um, they're looking at uh, uh, low-income tenants um, who receive rental assistance um, needing to pay a larger share of rent 
So currently those um, tenants who receive assistance pay about 30% of their net income in rent. And so that would increase to about 35% of their income. And we know that that 5% um, could, you know, equal hundreds of dollars for people, uh, hundreds of dollars that they don't have. Mm -hmm. Um, They're looking to eliminate the housing trust fund, um, which designates funds uh, for affordable housing for people at risk of homelessness. Um, So what's been happening um, are that, uh, you know, tenant activists and their advocates have been protesting. So yesterday um, there were protests in 22 cities across the country, um, places like Chicago, D.C., New York, um, where uh, tenants wanted to have their voices heard. So they uh, made their way to churches. They made their way to lawmakers' offices. They made their way to local HUD offices um, to stand up and say enough is enough. Um, In addition to that, um, there's a tenant march that's happening um, in Washington, D.C. on uh, next Wednesday um, that is being uh, sponsored by several different community organizations so that people can keep that fight going. You know, Ben Carson got nailed. Of course, he's the head of HUD. Ben Carson got nailed for saying that poverty is largely a state of mind. And he went on the air with a number of agencies afterward and said, well, no, it's a factor. It's a part of poverty that can be the state of mind, kind of poor in spirit. And we know he's mealy-mouthed. We know that he doesn't know what he's doing. So let's just put that to the side. But let's talk about the fact that, that this is the view that seems to permeate the actual actions of HUD. Who's acting, aside from the activists and aside from the outside the Beltway groups, who's trying to act as some kind of a curb on what they're doing here? I know Maxine Waters has particularly chimed in and said that, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you caught this earlier this week. She said if when uh, he gets her in front of, of her committee, if he tries to pull anything, she's going to tear his ass apart. Thank God for Maxine Waters. But who else is keeping an eye on him? <laughs> Indeed. I, I think a lot of people are, um, because I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I, I think it's a it's a larger uh, systemic issue than just housing. Um, so as I look at it, I really think of it as connected to how we look at poverty. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm connecting it to how we look at um how we look at jobs. So, you know, the the Trump administration has been also, you know, touting these fictional numbers around jobs and saying that, you know, they've done a great job with jobs. Well, actually, there are fewer jobs that have been produced, you know, in the last few months than there were in the last four months of the Obama administration. I think it's 65,000 less jobs uh, from February to May um, than in the final four months of the Obama administration. And in fact, 2017, Uh, is on track to produce the fewest net new jobs in seven years. Um, It's also tied to um, minimum wage. And we know that the Republicans are adamantly opposed to minimum wage um, increases. And in Missouri, we just saw that uh, the governor actually signed a bill into law saying that cities cannot create their own minimum wage. So workers in St. Louis who had just received an increase in the minimum wage will now find their wages reduced back to the state minimum wage. So um, to me, you know, it's it's a larger fight than just housing. So that means that, um, you know, uh, labor unions are getting involved because they're looking at uh, making sure that people have, um, you know, sustainable and decent employment. Um, but it's a larger issue around how we frame poverty and how we talk about poverty. So So people who are interested in making sure that people have, um, you know, access to to a, a quality of life 
mm-hmm. um, are, should be concerned absolutely about what's happening. It's, it's, it's a bigger problem than just housing, for sure. You know, this this moves right over to some of the stuff you covered in your Texas column, which is the first of, of your posts on Daily Coast that I found. And it, it talks about politics as something of a barometer of what can go on for the rest of the nation. We're kind of California-centric out here. We kind of look at ourselves and say, yes, as California goes, so goes the nation. And this is almost like the polar opposite of that, because Texas is going just the opposite direction. I don't know, Kelly, if you saw this week, there was quite a bit of fuss about a New York Times column that said there are people in the northern and rural reaches of California who feel completely disenfranchised by how blue we are here, uh, how much we you know, are anti-Trump, how much we work to preserve some of the things that we're losing onto the Republicans. And you pretty much start your article about Texas the same way, saying that there are people who live in Texas who feel disenfranchised and cast aside by what's happening in the other direction in Texas. And and again, everything you cite there is kind of shot through with that indifference to quality of life, indifference of real impact of what they're doing as opposed to what kind of power it gets them. So um, take that from any any part of the, of the story you want there. Yeah. So what I find really interesting in, in Texas, and this is the work of um, Lawrence Wright, who's a, um, a writer at The New Yorker, really lays out the history of Texas, that Texas was controlled by the Democrats. Um, and and I, he doesn't spell this out, but I assume that they were conservative Democrats, but Democrats nonetheless. And then in the 70s, there was this shift to the state being controlled by Republicans. Um, and, and even though um, demographic shifts in the state are largely left-leaning, the state is still controlled by Republicans. And what's shocking about that um, is that they are really quite extreme. Um, And so their tendency towards extremism um, is a barometer of how the rest of the country can go, largely because um, the rest of the country has these Republican-led uh, legislatures. So some of the things that they're doing around um, defunding women's health programs, um, you know, one of the um, uh, Tea Party uh, representatives there said, um, this is a war on birth control and abortion, and that's what family planning is about. Um, and their sole purpose is to cut off access to birth control. Um, so they've slashed their family planning budget um, from you know 112 million to 37 million, which has me- meant that you know nearly 100 family planning clinics have closed, and so that's meant you know limited access for women to reproductive um, health care. Um, but what's shocking about that is you know they have the highest uh, rate of uninsured people in the country. Um, 17% of women and girls live in poverty in Texas, um, and in, in in four years in Texas, the number of women who have died in childbirth has doubled. And so the maternal mortality rate in Texas is uh, is comparable to that of the uh, uh, you know a developing country. Wow. Um, which is shocking. Mm-hmm. It's 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 shocking. So, you know, if you think about that being a barometer for what could happen in other states, particularly if Democrats don't win, that is really a cautionary tale. You know, there's a a one line in your piece there. Legislators in the state want to stop women from having access to birth control, but haven't understood this will result in more babies being born. I always find myself wondering if any either one is possible. They don't really grasp the impact of what they're doing. They don't they don't follow a rationally to be 
Or the other possibility, and I see this reflected in a lot of their moves, they don't care. It's a it's a power grab or it's a desire to placate a certain group that they want to stay in the good graces of and let the real results be damned. Right. I agree with you. I think they don't care, but they don't grasp the consequences of not caring. So when mm. women are forced to have babies that uh, they don't want or don't can't afford, then there's an impact on families. There's an impact on systems schools and health services and all kinds of things are impacted. Um, And they don't want to pay money for those things. So that part continues to floor me that they they want to force women to have babies, but they don't understand the, the impact of that or they don't care about it. Talking to Kelly Macias about her columns in the Daily Coast. Uh, the last one I want to talk about with you, Kelly, is something. And again, this kind of thing, we, we hear about it in a story here and a story there. And you took this phenomenon and you put it together all in one column. In Trump's America, nooses are making a comeback. Yeah, there's there's been a series of, of, of these things happening. Um, and I, I think that they speak to... Um, the the deep anti-blackness that is just pervasive in this country. And it, it didn't start with Donald Trump, um, but it continues to be fostered um, through his presidency. Um, and it, it speaks to the continued work that we have to do around race in this country. So um, there are a couple of uh, incidents that have happened recently um, that that piece speaks to, um, uh, one being um, or a couple that I've written about. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, recently at uh, American University, there was a student um, who, a uh, student government president who was elected a, a black American, um, and there were nooses uh, found on campus with bananas um, and all kinds of things written, um, the name of her uh, black sorority written in it, um, as well as uh, Harambe, uh, the name of the, the gorilla that was killed. Um, nooses were found at um, the African-American um, Museum here in Washington, um, mm. University of Maryland, Fraternity House, um, U- the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. And in that case, um, a, a white uh, worker there actually handed um, a noose to a black co-worker. Um, and then in a separate story I wrote about um, just the following day, um, there was a uh, delivery man in New York, a black delivery man who um, went to deliver to a butcher shop and was actually handed a noose by um, uh, the, the butcher uh, and, and, and that he was delivering to. Um, and the butcher actually said something to him along the lines of, you know, here's a gift for you. If you get tired, you can end it all or something. Oh, my God. Um, so I'm presenting in, in those pieces that they're not isolated incidents. They may feel like they are, um, but they're not. They're happening routinely. And I, I, again, they speak to a pattern of, of supremacy. They speak to a pattern of racism that we have yet to address in this country. And, and I saw something on Twitter uh, over the weekend that really spoke to me because we, we're in denial about how pervasive racism is in this country. And, and the person who tweeted it was white and said, we as white people have been taught that it's bad to be racist, but we haven't been taught that it's bad to do racist things. Um, And so that really speaks to me in a particular way, because I think that's right. I think that largely people would not say that even doing those things are racist. The butcher in New York continues to say that that was a joke, um, that it was a bad joke, but, you know, that he's not racist. Um, And so, uh, you know, I I, I continue to write about these things because I want us to be able to talk about it. You know, we have a we have a race problem. We have a problem with white supremacy in this country, and we won't fix it until we begin to be able to honestly talk about it. 
I think we also need to stop accepting apologies from people who say, I did this, or I said this, or I wrote this, but that's not the person I am. And the fact is, if you did that, said that I wrote that, that is the person you are. Let's start from there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <sighs> really quickly, I want to wrap up with your most recent column, because it goes to exactly what we're talking about now. And that is, you're seeing a schism in the alt-right between those who are blatantly, proudly racist and anti-Semitic, and those who really are but don't want to call themselves that. And Richard Spencer is, of course, the face of those who are openly racist, not what he's going to call himself. But is it possible, I'm, I'm playing the edges here, is it possible someone identifies with the alt-right without being a racist? Or is that off the table? <laughs> I think it's completely <laughs> off the table. <laughs> I think everything that they have uh, appealed to um, everything that they have said that they are for um, is clearly uh, um, from a uh, white supremacist framework. Um, they have offered nothing um, that uh, is to the contrary. So I, um, the idea that they could be something else is, is semantics. Um, and I, I think it's uh, fascinating how they want to repackage it. Mm -hmm. to make it look different. I think that speaks a little bit to um, at least an understanding that, um, uh, you know, at one point in time, we did make a shift culturally that it wasn't as acceptable to be so blatantly racist. Mm -hmm. um, and so people uh, were not as, as forthright um, with their racism. Of course, people were doing it in their homes and, you know, in, in probably gatherings, but, um, you know, that had stopped for a while so publicly. Um, and so I think that speaks to we know it's not polite um, necessarily to be out, you know, forthright uh, with some of those things. Um, but to me, you know, it, it, it's the same. <laughs> so uh, what they want to call themselves is irrelevant. Their, their uh, behavior um, and how they show up in the world certainly speaks for themselves. Kelly, I'm really pleased to have found your writing and I thank you for cutting into your day to take some time and talk to me about it. Thank you so much, Angie. I really appreciate it. Kelly Macias, you'll find her work at Daily Coast. She writes under her own name there. And that is a wrap on the Bradcast. I'm Angie Kerr. This is my last meeting with you. Till further notice, Brad and Desi are returning from vacation for the next go-round. Until you hear from them, good luck, world. I can't stand this in.